0: Daniel six is one of these, one of these uh, really familiar stories. It's in every children's Bible, I'm sure of it. We know this story. It's the story of the lion's den. I think it was one of the kids' Bibles said like the day the lions fasted, or something like that. You know, there's all the plays on it. Uh, if you've had any connection. With the church throughout your life, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this story. And as with any story that you're familiar with, it's important to kind of take a step back and let's think fresh through this story. Let's allow the Lord to speak. Sometimes you can be so familiar with something that it's like, "Yeah, I know the story. I know what's happening. But ultimately, as we are studying Daniel, our goal is not just to know these stories, Not just to know the history or the facts of what happened while the Jews were in exile or the transition of empires. But ultimately, there's a reason we have this book, Daniel, in our Bible. There's a reason that we have this here. It gives us hope and it teaches us how to live faithful as exiles. Daniel's all about hope. It's a book of hope. It's a book of how to live as an exiled people. It gives a glimpse into the life of a faithful exile. So far in this series, we have dealt primarily with which kingdom? With which empire? Babylon. Yeah. We have, yeah, we've dealt predominantly with Babylon And in chapter 6, we are introduced to a whole new empire, a whole new uh, beast, so to speak. And this is the Medo-Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. They came and they conquered Babylon at the end of chapter 5, we spent the last couple weeks looking at the conclusion of the story of the writing on the wall. Uh, we We read that that very night, the Persians were at the door, and they take over the empire. So as we get into this story, first thing to notice that you have to just pay attention to, Daniel retains his leadership. He retains his position of influence in the middle of empire transition. This is not normal in regime change. When leadership comes in, usually the old leadership must go. But something was significant about Daniel. Something was unique about the way Daniel uh, had developed that ultimately when we see this new leadership come into play, they keep him. In fact, they promote him. This is not normal. There's something happening that's abnormal in this situation. So sort of to set the story up here, this is what's happening. Darius becomes the ruler of Babylon. And he sets up a delegated system of authority. He puts 120 rulers, satraps, or or other translations will say governors. Uh, He puts them in charge of different areas, and then he puts three leaders in charge of that 120. It's a delegated authority. Some translations would call those three leaders presidents or administrators. Ultimately, their job, they were accountable to the king. And he does all of this, Daniel says, so that he would suffer no loss. This means that the job of these 123 leaders, their job was to make sure that the king got his share. Their job was to make sure that the taxes were getting paid, that the king's interests and the king's wishes were kept and were met. And apparently, Daniel was really good at that job. One of the most striking things in this whole story is that Daniel's posture, his friend's posture earlier in the book, always seems to be this service, even of pagan, ungodly, undeserving kings. Their posture still seems to be that of service. They go out of their way to make the king and the kingdom look good, to be successful, and as much of these stories, and this is what we're going to get into some defiance later on in this story, as much as these stories are about defiance, they're also about public service and diligence and love of your neighbor. Daniel's really good at his job. He's very good. And he's getting promoted. So Darius takes note. This is verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished amongst all the other high officials and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. An excellent spirit was in Daniel, so much so that the king took note. He had undoubtedly heard the stories of Daniel and his interactions with Nebuchadnezzar and with Belshazzar, I'm sure he had heard the tales of Daniel and his God. And there's an excellent spirit in Daniel, so much so that he's about to be promoted. But this does not bid too well with the other leaders. Verse 4, the High officials and the satraps sought to find grounds for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. In typical political fashion, and just like pretty much all of politics, uh, they won't have it. It's not okay that this foreigner, who this servant of the previous empire, is getting elevated and Getting prestige. They need to find a way to discredit Daniel. They need to find a way to make the king not like him, distrust him. I think this is why this is as we're looking at Daniel as like a, a window of how to be faithful in exile. It was reminded of First Peter, when Peter speaking to the disciples of Jesus and telling them to live as faithful exiles, he says this, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. As disciples of Jesus, we can count on the fact, especially if we live in a place that is similar to what we do, that people will not like if we're living out the implications of the gospel. It will rub people wrong. It will negatively affect the way they feel about you. It could also work out well, but you can count that there will be trials when we're living faithful. Continuing verse 4 But they could find no grounds for complaint or any fault. Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, What shall we, we shall shall not find any grounds for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel was faithful, no error, no fault, nothing. Was found, no skeletons in his closet. Despite all of their political dirt digging, all of their efforts to discredit Daniel, they could find nothing hidden in the background check. No skeletons in his closet. He was faithful. He was faithful in his work as a servant to a pagan king, to a series of pagan kings. They're not looking for his, his character as a follower of Yahweh. They're looking for his service to ungodly kingdoms. And in that, he's faithful. I think sometimes we can read these stories and almost over-spiritualize this. When they can't find fault in him, that means that they can't find fault in his work as a leader, as a public servant, both in Babylon and now in Persia. He was really good at his job, so much so that they couldn't discredit him based off of what he did in his vocation. There was nothing they could do to discredit him. What this means, the king suffered no loss. No one skipped out on their taxes. Just really plainly, guys, this is what it means. Everyone who was, in, who was needed to fight for the emperor did. The king suffered no loss. That's what that means. In the areas where Daniel was in charge, it was good. It was good. These other leaders knew that the only way, the only thing they could find against Daniel would be, it would have to do with the area of his worship of Yahweh. The only way they could find something against Daniel was if it had to do with the law of his God. That was verse 5. So find shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless it is in connection with the law of his God again, like Peter said, as aliens and strangers, strangers and exiles, that we would live in such a way that the people of our county and of our city, as they see our good deeds, even if they're trying to find fault, they'd have to glorify God. No, this is a servant of God. That they wouldn't, find any way to fault us unless it had to do with our worship, with our prayer, with the way that we commune with King Jesus. So we know the story, right? They set a trap. They try to get him. They do it just like politicians do. They go and they stroke sort of Darius' ego. Oh, King, live forever. You should write this law. They're they're, uh, convincing him to write this law that's intended to trap Daniel. It's intended to remove him as a competitor in their sight. Darius, just like politicians do, he plays right into it. He writes the law that whoever makes petition to any man or God for 30 days except to him shall be thrown into the den of lions. They knew that if they were going to discredit Daniel, this is how it had to happen. It had to be around the way he worshipped his God. Daniel was in public service. He worked and was successful. But he also was a very open worshiper. It was very clear to everybody around him, this man worshipped a different God, worshipped Yahweh. His worship, his loyalty, his prayer went only there. This is a reoccurring theme through this book. Remember Daniel's name, we looked at this a long time ago. Daniel's name means the Lord is my judge. He lived out the meaning of his name over and over again. You see this several ways so far in in this book. You see this in the way Daniel refers or talks about the geopolitical climate. The way he talks about things happening. Daniel 1, 2, Daniel says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who did it? The Lord. He describes the capture of Jerusalem and of the kingdom of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, like this. The Lord did it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of, of Babylon. Just like that, one king to the other, from the hands of the Lord. God did it. Again and again, Daniel tells the story of the political environment just like that. Daniel 5 18. We looked looked at this last week. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. It came from Yahweh. Everything Nebuchadnezzar had came from God. Listen to the way Daniel prayed back in chapter 2. Daniel said, in Daniel 2.20, he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings, and he sets them up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Remember how Daniel ate. This is going way back. You guys remember? Remember the flannel graphs? (laughs) Daniel was one of the captives taken by Babylon When they captured Jerusalem, he chose, when he was being trained in the school of Babylon, he chose not to partake in the king's delicacies and the wine. For Daniel, his food was a God issue. For Daniel, everything was a God issue. All of life, ultimately all of life is a discipleship issue. All of your life is a God issue. Not just the religious parts that we relegate to Sunday, Afternoons. So Daniel 1, verse 8, Daniel says this, and I think it's this is the the thrust of this whole book. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's rich foods. I love this verse. Think it's one of the most important verses as we're studying this, this whole book. What did he do? He resolved, some translations say. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. From youth, when he was a little boy, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Therefore, when things arise and they come up, it's the issue with food, it's the issue with kings and leaders. He had already made up his mind how he would go. Daniel looked to God to judge his case always, not to the king. This is how Daniel interpreted dreams. This is how he gave counsel to the kings. Daniel lived in a way that was fully centered in his prayer life with God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, where does he give credit for his ability to interpret dreams? He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made it known to King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5, he accuses one of the most powerful rulers of irreverence and treason against God. It says, the God in, whom, in whose hand is your breath, in whose, in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Boldly confronts Belshazzar. Every interpretation Daniel has given has God right at the center of it. It always points back to God, not to himself. Every great king, geopolitical situation that he's dealt with so far is like the grass that grows and withers. But Yahweh stands, and oddly, here is Daniel, three kings in. Story tonight focuses on probably the most important part, important of the ways Daniel displayed his ultimate allegiance to God to the Lord. It was his worship and his prayer. It was for God and him alone. There was no room for anybody else in his allegiance. One of the most amazing ways Daniel lived out the implication of the meaning of his name, that the Lord is his judge, was his prayer life. What that means to Daniel is that what God thinks and what God does ultimately matters way more than what anybody else thinks or does. It just does. We have to get this. We have to settle with this, that what God is doing in our community, what God is doing in your life, what God is doing in the life of your neighbors What God thinks of you, what God thinks of our city, what God thinks of our community is so much more important than anything else, than any opinion, any idea, any philosophy, any politics. It is more important than anything else, and we have access to get that information through the place of prayer. So for Daniel, this meant ultimately this life of defiant, daring, disciplined prayer and worship. Fellowship with God. It meant that he communed regularly with God. If what God thinks matters most, then we consult him the most. If what God does is what matters the most... Let's look for what he's doing and then follow him. In other words, let's live our life led by the place of prayer. This is why Paul can say something as bold as pray without ceasing. Jesus said, I only do that that I see my father doing. Because you can live in a place so consumed with what God wants is what matters most. That, that drives every decision you make. Unfortunately, the, the simple reality is, and I think Nikolai pointed this out last week, often the church, if we're just honest, we're just as secular as the community around us. In our mind, we believe in God, cognitively, He's there. But we go about our life as if it's just like everybody else. There's no difference. We walk around the world thinking we have to make things happen. In a lot of ways, we live just as atheistically as we think the world is around us. we believe that God exists, but practically, are we living that way? Do we actually live as if the God of the universe wants to do things in our city? Do we actually live as though we can talk to the God who created everything, the God who formed you and knit you together, Our God is alive and active. He is working on behalf of his church. The book of Revelation says that he that Jesus is alive forever to make intercession on our behalf. That he's pleading our case for us. That he's invited us into intimate communion and relationship with him. To an ongoing dialogue relationship to spend time with him. And don't forget, Daniel was a very powerful political person. I you know, way too often, we live in a very busy society. How many of you guys once this week said, I'm busy? <laughs> busy. There's a lot going on. Daniel was probably busier. Back in Daniel uh, chapter 2... Nebuchadnezzar made him ruler of, over the whole of Providence of Babylon. Here in our text in chapter 6 Darius is makes him one of 3 leaders over all of Babylon. This guy has 100 or has a, at least a measure of governors underneath him that he's in charge of. He's helping to rule the entire empire. Sometimes I think we slip and we think that it's like just for pastors or like monks or like special prayer people. This guy was busy. He was involved. He had a day job, so to speak. It's not just for professional religious people. (laughs) This is for all of us. Everyday Christians, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. For businessmen, for stay-at-home moms, for social workers, construction workers, wherever you find yourself, this is for you. If you think that you're busy, Daniel was probably more immense, more immersed in it, his work than we are, and yet he lived as a person of prayer. He was so open with his prayer that even his enemies knew he regularly prayed. He knew that God was his judge. He lived as though he was actually dependent on Yahweh, He lived as though what God thought and what God was doing and what God wanted is what mattered most. Daniel lived by consulting God and asking God to act. I don't know about you, but I can't read this this chapter and not feel a little bit convicted by Daniel's, like, just posture of courageous prayer it makes me want to be a person of like daring prayer, if necessary, even defiant prayer so let's look at Daniel's response to Darius' decree against prayer daniel's life of prayer was so well known, it was so well established as part of his character that was the only way they could come against him. So they get Darius to write this law, and then we come to verse 10. Verse 10 in chapter 6 is where we actually see, I think, who Daniel is. Verse 10 says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I think this story is intentionally placed as like a bookend with Daniel 3, Daniel 3, if you remember, is the story of Daniel's friends who refused to bow their knees with the statue that Nebuchadnezzar put up. They refused to bow. And here we see a story now of Daniel who is openly bowing before Yahweh, openly Bowing his knees is in worship and prayer to the one true God. As a disciple of Jesus, I think it's important that we are known both for the things that we refuse to give into. to. That's what Daniel 3 is about. I think we're known for a lot of these things, the things that we won't partake in and be a part of, the things that we stand against but it is also important that we are clear and that people know us by the fact that we are worshipers of king jesus we should equally be known if not more be known by the fact that we are a worshiper of god that he is where all of our power, all of our strength, he is the one that we are wholly and solely dependent on. It's not enough for our friends or our neighbors to know that we are not participating in said thing or that we're politically opposed to said thing. They must also see a vibrant life of surrendered, surrendered dependence. Of worship that's lived out in a way that they could see it and know that we are bowing our knees before King Jesus. I got six things here, real quick. Just little nuggets that we learned from this story. Daniel didn't act in ignorance. He acted in full acknowledgement of the law and full understanding of the consequence. When Daniel knew that the document had signed, then he went and prayed. Don't forget, Daniel's on the brink of a major promotion. He's about to be possibly promoted to ruler over all of Persia. Can you imagine the rationale, at least that you and I would go through, if we're honest here? Think of what would go through his head. My influence would be so great if I had this position. I could do more for God if I'm alive than if I'm food for lions. It's only 30 days. <laughs> I could pray at the end of 30 days. Come on, Daniel, let's not be legalistic. God can hear you if you just pray in your head. Nobody's going to know. But he rejected all of that rationalization, all of that effort to make things easier on himself. He rejected it all. He knew the law. He knew the penalty of the law, and he prayed. Second thing, he didn't go to the woods or to some other secret place to pray. He went to his house. He could have just kept on praying without putting himself at risk if he had gone underground for four weeks. Or moved out of the area. He's a wealthy, prestigious man. He could have possibly hid himself. Could have moved out of town for a month. There's no law saying that you have to pray in your house. He could have went out to the woods and hid and prayed. 3. He didn't go into the secret chamber of his house. He went to the room on the second story with the open windows and he prayed facing Jerusalem. This is public. Intentionally public, defiant even. He's making a public statement, possibly as an effort to encourage his fellow, fellow Jewish citizens to do the same. We would call this today a bit of a demonstration. It's a bit of public civil disobedience. It's a very public thing. And there's no biblical law requiring him to do this publicly. Four, he didn't pray once, just early in the morning or late at night, when nobody would see. He'd make sure that he didn't miss his usual rhythms. Five, when Daniel prayed, he didn't try to cloud it in some, like, Vague terminology as if he was actually talking to Darius. This is a way I think I would rationalize this. But I didn't actually say that. Um, No, he actually says he gave thanks to his God. This is Yahweh, very clear. Not Darius, not the gods of the Medes and the Persians, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sixth thing. He didn't change the way he prayed or do anything different. He didn't yield to the pressure that Darius made. The end of this verse, it says that he prayed as he had always done. Just like he always did. He just kept praying. The question is, this is where I always like to land these, where does that leave us? What does that mean for you and I today, tomorrow, this week? How do we live this out? I think it's really important to note, when the time for defiance came, Daniel didn't change anything. He didn't have to change anything because he had already established and purposed in his heart from youth that he was not going to defile himself. He had established well-worn patterns and rhythms of prayer and worship and communion with God to where he didn't have to change anything. This is just how Daniel did life. He had always prayed three times a day. He had always prayed in the second story of his house with the window open to Jerusalem. This was his pattern, his routine. This was his discipleship rhythms. Daniel had a long history of practicing the way of the Lord And he had purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And the defiance was just living out that implication. When push came to shove, it wasn't even a question. There was not even a doubt in his mind. This is how he lived. His God was so real and so tangible to him. His his God was so alive and active. There was no option. What do you mean? No, this is what I do. I pray. All of his life belonged to the Lord. It was fully given. No king could take that from him. No king could take his life. He had already surrendered it all to Yahweh. Ultimately, guys, I think it could be years from now. I don't know. But it's possible things are going here. We have to have, as followers of Jesus, we have to have well worn patterns of discipleship, of community, of prayer, of worship in our life so that when things get thrown out of whack, we know what to do. We already, this is how we go. This is what we do. We worship Jesus, we serve our King. We must practice the way of Jesus now. We must seek to live as faithful disciples. And like Daniel, we must purpose in our hearts now. We must train our children in the way that they should go, our grandchildren, if you have grandkids, in the way that they should go, that they would purpose in their hearts not to defile themselves, to establish rhythms of discipleship that are so well-established They can't be shaken. My prayer for us this week is that if our faith is all here, if it's all in our head, something that we cognitively believe but we don't experientially know, my prayer is that we would see that the Lord would make himself real to us this week. I think way too often we don't pray because we don't actually believe God is going to do something when we pray. So my prayer is that he would make himself real to you if that's if you're in that camp. That he would show up in a real and tangible way. If you're casual or half-hearted even with your discipleship, with your disciplines of the faith... My prayer is that you would grow in strength and diligence, that we would walk as disciples of Jesus, that we would practice the way of Jesus. Ultimately, that refuge would be a community that together lives a life worthy of the gospel, that we live a life worthy of the calling of the gospel in our county, in our city, that we would practice the way of Jesus together together Intentionally, as disciples, worship team can come back up. I'm going to pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God that is alive and active. That you really do care about the things that we pray about. You really do hear our cries, that you move to action. And God, I pray that this week you would make yourself known to us, that the reality of the God that we serve, the reality of the God that we pray to would be clear, that you would show yourself as faithful, and God we trust you and we love you. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus name. Amen.